Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Progressive Bitcoiner. I'm your host, Trey Walsh, and today we have on the show Ahmed Gatnash. Now, Ahmed is the executive director of the Kawakabi Foundation, which focuses on human rights in North Africa and the Middle East region. And he's also the author, along with Iyad, of this book right here I have for those watching on YouTube, The Middle East Crisis Factory, which is such a fantastic book focusing on the modern history of the Middle East, on politics uh, in the Middle East for those that are just looking at situations and conflicts in the Middle East, uh, such as myself, like from a Western point of view, and just not knowing where to think or turn in terms of just understanding the basics of, of this region and the complexities in the region as well. So written from two authors that have deep ties to this region and family, and history with this region and getting their perspective was absolutely fantastic. Um, and in terms of this conversation, Ahmed is really, really fluent in uh, all sorts of human rights issues and democracies and forms of governments and what he likes to focus and talk on. So this conversation covered a range of topics, including uh, Western democracies and in terms of conflicts in the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, and even talks about uh, Bitcoin and how Bitcoin can be a force for good and for human rights uh, still in this early stage of experimentation and what will Bitcoin look like in the future and what could it be used for in terms of a, a tool for human rights and things like that. So really hope you all enjoy this conversation. As always, you can reach out to me with any thoughts or questions uh, on this conversation. You can reach out to me at hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. And as always, be sure to check out our promo links to Bitbox and SAS Mining uh, to take advantages of those discount codes below. And please also subscribe to our Substack newsletter where you can get uh, issues of our newsletter, our weekly newsletter delivered right to your inbox that covers, um, you know, different events from Bitcoin and the landscape of Bitcoin uh, globally. Um, and we kind of handpick certain stories to talk about from a progressive lens and focus on progressive values. So that'll be delivered weekly to your inbox, as well as episodes of our podcast delivered to your inbox as well uh, in an easily shareable format as well. If you have a certain episode that you like and you want to share with family or friends, that's an easy way for you to do that as well. So be sure to check that out in the show notes. The Substack link is in the show notes. Um, all right. Thank you for listening and thank you for sharing this episode and any others and for all of your support. And we'll see you again next week. Hi, Ahmed, and welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And thanks for having me. How are you? Absolutely. Doing well. Uh, I was just saying before we jumped on, I like these morning conversations, get to have coffee on the interview, the start of the day, um, talking with you. So, so really looking forward to this one. Now, you know, people listening to, to this show, as I was mentioning, might have heard your conversation with Peter about a year ago, um, might have heard different talks or kind of met you maybe even in person at different conferences and things like that. And um, and the work and different things you've done with like the Human Rights Foundation, Oslo Freedom Forum. But for those that haven't, do you want to give a little intro to, to who you are and, and what you do? So I'm a Libyan British activist. I started an organization called Coekbe Foundation, um, which is a human rights organization focused on the long term prospects of freedom in the Middle East and North Africa specifically. And we try to take um, unconventional approaches and work on things which are potentially revolutionary in the long term, but are, you know, under under resourced or receiving disproportionately less attention than they merit in the in the present moment. Awesome. Yeah. And, and also, I'll be sure to hold up your book and, and plug it here too. Middle East Crisis Factory. I will say I, I read this on uh, my, my morning commutes as well to my my nonprofit gig on the train. And, and I think people have been have seen the cover 
and they're like, what is, what is that about? I've gotten some, some looks on the, on the train. It's a, um, it, it's a fantastic book. I know you poured, as you described to me, poured a lot of yourself into this. Um, you, you know, and I'm, I'm going to put this in the show notes and really highly recommend people, people look at it as just a, a good way for, especially I think folks in the West or folks who feel so detached. And as we were saying, feel that it's, it's too possible, you know, too complicated to possibly understand or try to get into just, um, Middle East history, politics, or regime change, all of these different things. I feel like it's a really good intro and understanding from two folks that that know more than we do um, about these situations, whether it's family connections, different personal uh, situations from from both of you who wrote the book. Can you tell people a little bit about um, your reason for 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 writing the book and getting into it? So I think um, as a lot of people's experiences um, looking at the way the Middle East is, um, you're almost gaslit um, by constantly being told the region is too complex to understand. And there are reasons way, be way beyond your comprehension that, you know, things have to be this way. Um, but if you allow yourself to actually think about it for yourself for a moment, it becomes, you know, incredibly clear to anyone that the way um, especially Western nations have behaved towards the region over the past few decades is incredibly counterproductive, if not completely insane. And we wanted to take a first principles look, um, allowing ourselves to go beyond the political orthodoxies about the way policy must be and actually understand why is this region the way it is? How did it get here? And what does it actually need in order to, you know, heal from the, the gaping wounds that it's, it's suffering? Yeah, um, so the book is like two halves. The first half is... Mm -hmm. Uh, pretty much a, a historical primer. We're talking about the last century of Middle East history and how we got to this position um, with kind of um, case studies illustrating a phenomenon we call the vicious triangle, which is basically um, terrorism, tyranny, and foreign intervention, and how these three forces um, mutually reinforce and how policy over the last half century or so has basically consisted of attempting to use one of these against the other two, um, and kind of taking short vignettes from different countries in the region to illustrate how in every situation in which this has been tried, it's actually ended up backfiring and empowering the very thing you're trying to destroy. Um, and then the second half of the book is looking forward and trying to explain from those values and those principles that we articulated what actually can be done that would be more productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's so many good um, good things in the in this book, and it's it's not a, a giant book or anything that's too um, you know you don't and no one needs a primer or precursor to the book. I'd, I'd say um, if you have an in depth knowledge of the region and you've studied it, it's still a great book for you. But if you have no idea what is going on other than what we've been told, whether it's in the U.S. or in your in your context, um, it's also a great book. So really going to encourage people to to get this and, and read it. Um, you sent over and we went back and forth on a bunch of topics for the show because we're talking about Middle East, North Africa, all of these different things. Um, obviously, you're focused on human rights, um, you know, the, the, the hope and thought of, of Bitcoin for resistance, all of these different topics. Um, I was just describing to you, this is a whole seminar. It's a whole, it's overwhelming to, to think about what to, to talk about that is. Um, but I love some of the, the topics you sent over, including kind of like, you know, institution building and the need for new progressive paradigms because i think one thing that you've probably been digging even deeper into since the book because the book presents 
different paradigms that just as you described, we're not necessarily used to, right? Like in the US, there's a left approach and a right approach to foreign policy. Um, sometimes a different mini camps within that um, in other nations, the same thing. And, um, and, and I think you try to weed through that to see directly what would possibly help the best in a situation or how can we look forward out of these, these paradigms. So for you, when you sent that over, when you think about, you know, institutional building and different, you know, new progressive paradigms, what, what does that mean to you to kind of prime this conversation? So this was a big debate that was happening in the Middle East region early in the Arab Spring in the first couple of years after 2011. Um, the whole question was, like, we're overthrowing these regimes. What comes next? Mm. Um, and obviously, some people approached that from a very identitarian side and wanted to, you know, return to an idealized past and, and bring in systems of governance from history. Other people mm. um, of the kind of more secular liberal persuasion wanted to import um systems of governance from, you know, countries where it's perceived to be broadly working out, like I'm talking about Western democracy, um, mm -hmm. if it's possible to boil it down to two words, which I don't believe it is. Um, and our contention at the time was basically um, the system, which is called, which is being called Western democracy, is not really having a great track record at home. Um, like you have mm -hmm. massive um, inequality economic inequality uh, continually spiraling that inequality is starting to affect the political process because of the involvement of money in politics um, mm -hmm. the media is kind of captured by an elite uh, the population feels generally rest less represented across western democracies um, less uh, has less faith and less trust in its institutions especially the political institutions but also the media um, and the whole idea was, why would we want to copy a system with its assumptions, with its flaws, and many of those assumptions being made at the time that the system was built? So like talking about the US, um, you guys happen to have pretty much like the train of thought of the founding fathers, you know, that they made certain decisions because of certain reasons. Like you can see that those arguments in stuff like the Federalist Papers, why, was it, mm. why is the constitution this way? Because of this. And after, you know, two or 300 years, when society has changed so much, when technology has had such a massive impact on society, some of those assumptions aren't um, entirely correct anymore. So, um, again, like why, why import a system with um, assumptions that are outdated when you can rebuild something which is suited to the present day and which addresses the flaws and, and the, the gaping cracks which have started to emerge? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that, so. That's Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, that's 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 basically where it all came from. And then um, around that, you also need new institutions again because of the way society is evolving, because of the way communities are changing, the way people relate to each other. Um, society is atomized, and you have record low levels of trust in like pretty much every institution you can think of, from the media to politics to local government. Um, people feel disconnected and don't relate anymore. So, what can you build that that brings them together again? Yeah. And where do you start with the thinking through these things, right? Is this, um, is this a theoretical exercise? Is this a, let's attempt this locally, um, in, in different nations, obviously you're talking about many different things here. You're talking about, okay, the, um, the, the Western world in the U S uh, their kind of thought was always importing democracy, especially in, you know, the Iraq war. 
okay, we're going to import democracy and and let the Iraqis uh, handle this, right? We're going to demolish what they knew and then they're going to build democracy and it's going to look just like ours um, and we're going to be there and then everything's going to be great. And then <laughs> under the Obama administration, well, this is more Afghanistan, but different thoughts of like, it's, it will take X number of years and then we'll pull out at this exact moment and it'll be perfect, right? So there's that. And then there's the context of what you're describing actually from the ground up in um, different contexts of different nation states in the Middle East and what that looks like for each, <laughs> you know, um, state and network state. So for you, where where does one begin with this? Whether it's, um, uh, you know, uh, describe to me, I think, help me break down a little bit of what your organization would do in terms of of this, like your nonprofit would do, thinking from an activist lens um, when having these type of conversations. Like what would be some of the steps that your organization would take to bring about the world you're describing? So it's obviously way too big a task for a single organization. And yeah. I think all any of us can do is is pick off small pieces that are feasible and, and build it piece by piece from the bottom up. Um, the approach we're taking, and there are you know many different completely valid approaches. Our one happens to be that we're picking um, radical concepts and technologies and trying to bring them into the mainstream. So that includes, um, you know, a financial system, which is not um, completely centralized and controlled by political powers, um, which is obviously where our interest in Bitcoin comes from. Um, mm. Because, you know, one of the core issues of the region, um, you know, you mentioned, you kind of you alluded to the central incoherence of the whole democracy civilizing mission in the region which is like democracy is meant to be having agency over your own future but that idea is being brought to you at the barrel of a gun so you're not actually mm -hmm. having agency of your own future um but um if you actually approach it from the perspective of how do you increase the agency of the population and give them more and more control over their own destiny and reduce the extent to which um powers centralized powers powers which are unrepresentative can impose their will on them. Um, and you start looking through the root causes of that unaccountability of power. You know, one of them is inevitably going to be economic centralization. So mm. Bitcoin is going to play a role in that. One of them is going to be unrepresentative political systems. And this is uh, a discussion that's happening around the world. Like even in Western um, democracies, we're having discussions about concepts like um, proportional representation and whether having a bipartisan political system in which you're locked into one of two binary choices is really functional in the modern world. We're talking mm -hmm. about um, the relationship between economic inequality and political inequality and what measures can be taken to keep money out of politics. Um, we're talking about, um, you know, especially this, this one's happening more in the West at the moment, um, the role of the media plays in all of this and whether new media institutions can play a role in leveling the playing field. We're living through at the moment uh, an unprecedented, probably since the time of the invention of the printing press, decentralization of the media. Now that people mm -hmm. can have you know, their own newsletters and podcasts and independent media outlets, people are no longer locked into the same two or three outlets which tell you what the person who owns the outlet wants you to hear. Yeah. Now you can kind of approach your own menu. And it's that kind of um, creativity coupled with systematic thinking that I think everyone who aspires to change needs to pursue. Um, mm -hmm. And again, like you can only ever as an individual or even an organization 
tackle some small pieces of it. But if we work together as a movement and work, you know, unfailingly for a generation, maybe we'll get somewhere. This episode of The Progressive Bitcoiner is brought to you by Zeus. Zeus is a self-custodial Bitcoin wallet for Android and iOS. The app features a built-in Lightning node that allows you to take full control of how you make payments on-chain and on Lightning. You can easily onboard to the Lightning network and let Zeus's Lightning service provider, Olympus, do all the heavy lifting for you. Or you can get more hands-on and curate your own Lightning channels with whoever you transact with most. Zeus has best-in-class privacy and allows you to have great peace of mind when sending and receiving Lightning payments. Not only does the Zeus team not want to know how you're using your money, but they're building things in a way that they can't know. There's also a first-of-its-kind Lightning address that will allow you to receive payments 24-7 to your mobile wallet self-custodially. This is a great solution for a range of people, for those who just want to have the technical ability to set up their own infrastructure, to the nomads and dissidents that need to accept donations on the move. Other Lightning wallets don't give the users this level of control. In fact, many of them operate more like bank accounts that can be revoked and ultimately lead to you losing your money. With Zeus, you're in full control of your private keys and therefore can start to take full control of your financial destiny. To learn more and to learn where to download, head to ZeusLN.com. Yeah, you, you mentioned um, journalism. I think one thing that's that's always interesting to me too, and I think this could be possible anywhere, but especially what you see in the West is, you know, you, you've seen the rise of what people call as independent media, independent journalism, which is great on the surface, right? And, and I, I really do believe in that a decentralization of um, you know, kind of what the, the, the printing press did for the masses, right? In, in terms of, let's say, a religious component where it used to be one person speaking the truth. And then people were able to print and read and disseminate different information and read a holy text for themselves. Okay, see what this did throughout society. Like, it's not just one person that we have to trust and believe in. You can see for yourself, um, analyze for yourself. But then you see, quote unquote, independent journalists get really, really, really big um, to where they have millions and millions and millions of subscribers and followers. They're eclipsing traditional media, you know, in the U.S., kind of the political behemoths, you know, MSNBC, CNN, things like this in terms of numbers and views. And these people will still pretend to be, you know, the little folks, um, the victims, uh, this and that when it's kind of completely like Joe Rogan's a good example in the United States. And I'm net neutral on Joe Rogan. And this isn't like, to, he's just one example. There's many others. Um, Tucker Carlson doing similar things on, on X and things like this. So these are behemoth media companies at this point. So I, I'm just curious your, your thoughts on this. You know, when analyzing any of these systems, it, it's kind of, I view this way in politics as well. There could be someone who's, who's a really um, grassroots activist that gets into a political position and then years go by and you're like, what changed? Like they're, they're different. They're, for lack of better words, co-opted. They're they're a part of the system now. How do we? Because for me, I always have a tough time of understanding. Um, how do we prevent that from happening? Right? Um, could be the same. Take any any nation state. It could be a Middle Eastern na nation state. Anything where a grassroots activist and then they let's say they become president and then it, that is all gone away, died away. I'm not saying it has to happen that way, but that typically is the trend um, that we've seen with with power. Um, power power corrupts. So for me, that's um, that's a struggle for me to to think about. I think. Yeah. Well, I think um, yeah. Like pointing to the um, the danger of setting up sacred cows in any context, um, mm. and the need to always be critical. I think this is again not maybe not popular to say in this day and age. One of the things that the U.S. got extremely right. Um, 250 odd years ago is the concept of checks and balances and being really rigorous in 
figuring out how they can be applied to a system, um, understanding the incentives at play mm-hmm. and how to you know control them. Um, because a lot of the time on the left, we do kind of entirely put our trust in independent media or in specific influences and leaving our critical thinking at the door after that, which can mm-hmm. take us down you know dark paths um, when instead we should be you know a modern version of that check on power would be working on media literacy and making sure people can apply critical thinking to the stuff they're consuming even when it's material that confirms their biases and understanding that we have biases and and how to how to go about checking that as you consume media mm-hmm. yeah one one of the things too you you just mentioned um you know us on the left um th- this podcast is kind of targeting a left audience progressives to to talk about bitcoin to talk about so many different topics that are are adjacent to this um when you look at because again, in in the Bitcoin community in the United States, it's still largely right leaning, largely U.S. based libertarian. Um, some folks were even say, How, "What do you mean left or progressive in Bitcoin? It doesn't make sense." You know, all it's separating all of that, right? Just talking with us, talking to to our audience of folks. Um, a, a lot of folks in the left. Um, I'm just trying to see where where things have shifted throughout the ages post COVID post for for the US kind of Bernie Sanders movement. Um, even before that, I've had a lot of friends. This happens on two different extremes, right? But let's say when analyzing something like the Middle East, I think one thing your book does really well is e- even uh, a random example of this wasn't necessarily like a progressive or left, but the Iran nuclear deal under under Obama, right? The the politicization of that incident, right? It's like, okay, if you're in this camp, you have to fully unilaterally support this, right? And then you describe kind of the human rights abuses and things that were potentially allowed. Okay, on the other side, a, a Trump approach at the time, completely remove it. Let, let's create <laughs> just um, cataclysmic, just uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Like, like two fringe Chaos. examples. Chaos, exactly. That's the best word for it. Two fringe examples, right? Um, when you look at left movements um, in the West and their approach to, and I hate even saying this because you have to localize it, but Middle Eastern affairs or Middle East and North African affairs, um, the left has typically taken different approaches. Again, even in um, Israel-Palestine, right? Uh, taken specific approaches on things without maybe understanding what's going on. Um, some folks will do this because their favorite political leader has said so, or because their friends have said so, or because the movement dictates it. So when looking at that, have you seen, has has that shift been as apparent to you as it is to me, maybe even in, in your context in Europe, um, similar to the context in the US in terms of how the left has approached um, these different these different affairs and been caught up in things without trying to take a look at what understanding what's going on or trying to see actually this would be more helpful <laughs> rather than than that because i i can criticize the right all day on these things and i do but i think too part of me is like okay talking to this progressive and, and left audience um having someone like yourself on um ha- having these type of conversations is really healthy and good yeah so it is really easy to criticize the right it's very transparent what they do a lot of the time it's about naked political and economic interest but um the like many left and perspectives on foreign policy in the region have been way to the other extreme and with the opposite failure mode and obama is actually a really good example of this because in his 
desire to disengage militarily and end the forever wars, he basically went to the opposite extreme of saying, oh, these Arabs, this is their culture. You know, they're going to fight each other and kill each other forever. And, you know, having dictatorship as part of their culture, having sectarian warfare as part of their culture, that was the basic undertone of uh, his position on the region. And I think a couple of times he pretty much said it explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, the bigotry of low expectations. Um, and his entire policy was basically based around let's find um, some friendly dictators who want to, you know, um, to out there for our taste, who we can do deals with and who we can trust to, to keep this region, quote unquote, stable under an, under a military boot. Um, and then, you know, we can just look away and we don't have to pay much, too much attention to the, the horrific cost of that on the ground. Mm. Um, sometimes, you know, on the, um, so that's kind of like a center left on a, on the more left perspective, you often get, um, this idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And because Mm. we're against empire, uh, and neo-colonialism, anyone else who claims to be against that is therefore on our side and therefore they can fall into the mistake of legitimizing, um, awful, awful groups and movements. Um, mm-hmm. with this, you know, misle- misguided idea that these people are anti-colonial and therefore they're the good guys. And again, you're kind of um, making this assumption that these people are the legitimate representatives of those that they rule um, and therefore they deserve to be supported even when the people on the ground are crying out to be, you know, protected from the suffering they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, everything you just said there uh, refutes so much of what I see in daily life, um, whether it's from that that left group that I think is more um, maybe intellectually involved or wants to do what you just said, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or you have this kind of center left, moderate left, a conservative left in a way of um, it's it's weird. It's like you turn on warmongering in one moment and then extremely isolationist and shut down in another, which just creates more instability, as you said here and as de- is described in your book as well. Um, now, one thing that I that I want to focus on as well, because we haven't in in the pod yet, and just in having conversations with people, I think pulling on that thread of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and seeing that that's that's a large part of like our our podcast. It's the progressive Bitcoin. There are a million different ways to be progressive. But I think um, a lot of group of, you know, my friends, kind of this this podcast, different folks that are in Bitcoin and use that term progressive or left. We're not necessarily like democratic people or, you know, the Democratic Party. Um, a lot of us are disengaged with politics in general, but I think a lot of us are a part of historic left movements, whether it's it's Occupy, whether it's um, different type movements like that, like Black Lives Matter, um, different different movements and groups that. I really do believe in and have believed in different climate movements, things like this. Um, but in in talking with that audience about it, it's hard for me to put into words because I feel like from from my observation, and you'd have probably a similar observation, but also a deeper understanding of of the region and the work you're doing. Uh, this situation with Israel and Palestine has been one that's really really interesting to follow. Um, What I've seen from a Western perspective is when people are looking at the situation, we look completely through that Western lens. And the only way that we identify are people in my age range or from the left, we think of the Iraq war and we think of Al-Qaeda and what happened in Iraq and and the horrible abuses that 
the United States did in Iraq. That's that's the lens that a lot of folks have been looking at this situation through this. Can you talk about maybe the obvious mistake of, of doing that? Because um, this is just such a particular situation that I've been really perplexed by the movement on. Um, there's obviously a lot of anti-Semitism, but at the same time, there's horrible human rights abuses happening in Gaza from my perspective. So there's a lot of um, extreme actions and things happening throughout this conflict, obviously on the ground, but with with movements that are swelling throughout throughout the West and throughout the world. So I'll step back from Gaza for just a second and we'll come back um, because something you said was really important. It's that um, almost like a trauma on the left from what happened in Iraq, which is obviously, yeah. you know, one of the greatest crimes committed in this century. Mm-hmm. Um, and the that experience of seeing um, a war of aggression being perpetrated by um, you know Western democracies against the general will of their populations um, kind of entrenched this principle that all intervention is terrible. And mm-hmm. that is now like the knee-jerk reaction without actually thinking about it. So I'm from Libya, um, early in the Arab Spring in 2011, people rose up for their dignity and their freedom. And Gaddafi's response was basically, we're going to go from street to street, um, door to door and wipe people out. Mm. Um, there was a column of tanks um, on the outskirts of Benghazi, um, which is the second city of the country, on the night the NATO no-fly zone was implemented. And um, I have no doubt that if the no-fly zone hadn't been implemented and if those tanks hadn't also been bombed by um, Western fighter jets that night, there would have been a massacre that that following day on you know on the mm-hmm. scale of things we've witnessed in Gaza or in Syria, mm-hmm. and the West made that catastrophic. Uh, the the left and left movements in the West made the catastrophic error of judgment at the time that um, intervention should not happen, mm-hmm. um, and we saw the consequence of that later in Syria because intervention didn't happen in Syria. And now you compare the death toll in the two countries. Um, you know, it's still not great in Libya, but it's in the twenty to thirty thousand range. Whereas mm-hmm. in Syria, the United Nations stopped counting after five hundred thousand, um, and you know, it's credibly yeah. assumed to be well above a million people dead um, and several million displaced externally and internally now. Um, so it's not so simple to you know take a single principle like that and universalize it. Every situation has to be judged on its merits. Mm-hmm. And that's the real disaster. Um, the policy has become about tribalism and it's what does my side support so I can support it rather than what's the right thing to do in this situation. Um, coming back to what's happening in Gaza right now, um, it's another example, I think, of the need for new institutions because what we see generally is you know, like public opinion in the US is against what's happening in Gaza. It's against mm-hmm. giving more arms to Israel to continue massacring civilians uh, at an unheard of scale. Um, and yet, if you look at the political system and if you look at most of the mainstream media, you would not get that impression You do, yeah. because there's pretty much bipartisan support um, and the dissenting view is excluded from policy entirely. Um, it speaks to the fact that these political institutions have been engineered to keep dissenting voices outside of the room, even when the dissenting voices are the majority. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And again, that bipartisan system is now no longer a force for stability because it's keeping like the the pressure valve has slipped has has flipped and now pressure is building up because people are actually angry at the system for not representing them. Right. Yeah, I've I've never seen a bigger divide in my lifetime on public opinion. Um maybe be, uh, well even the Iraq war initially obviously wasn't but a couple of years after started to be but I mean in in the the quote unquote democratic party however they do these polls it's upwards of 70 80% opposition to any arms deals any any um kind of continuing of conflict in, in Gaza and, and calling for a ceasefire i think that was one of the specific questions um on the right it's it's lower but i i want to say it's still in the 430s 40s or something like that but nationally an average is close to 70% right and then us foreign policy you're right. It, it just, it, it almost lives completely out of the political process. It's its own nation state. <laughs> it's its own and fundamental. It's the view. same in, it's the same in Western Europe as well. Yeah. I think, um, public opinion in Germany is in a fairly similar place and mm -hmm. German po policy is similarly, um, ideologically pro-Israel, like pathologically, they're unable mm -hmm. to evaluate the situation on its merits because of their yeah. history. Sure. Com completely um how do we um how do we avoid it, it it's literally like a seesaw of one extreme to another right i mean we see this in political elections right they're just the natural swing of things um whether it's on different um you know foreign policy domestic policy things like that you see this pendulum swing um back and forth how do we get to a place of um stability how do we get to a place of actually moving the needle forward on but we don't have to say that specific instance but on on any of these uh these issues yeah i think that comes back to the the need for new in, new institutions so you were mm -hmm. talking about um a few minutes ago the democratic policy the democratic party i don't know if you consider yourself politically homeless or if you i do so i think i've said it here before i'm technically or well, it's known as a registered independent here, here in the u.s so the Thing that strips me from personally is I'm not able to vote in primaries um, hmm. because of that. But a while ago, I, I became extremely disconnected from the Democratic Party. I think post um, Bernie Sanders, post Hillary Clinton, what that what that election did against overwhelming um, support and kind of outcries from supporters, um, and then we got a Trump presidency, and they're still yeah. continuing to do that to this day. And I'm like, I feel confident in my decision. So yes feel very politically homeless. I think a lot of people that are listening to a, a Bitcoin podcast or in Bitcoin, yeah. obviously you see something wrong with the system. So I think in a lot of ways, many people that are progressive Bitcoiners, uh, you know, in Bitcoin in general, I think they feel politically homeless. Yeah. And, and what I always tell American friends is like, if you want to help fix what's going on in the Middle East, the best way of doing that is to actually make your own political system more representative so that um, mm -hmm. it's accountable and so that you can't have this massive disconnect in which people who have no skin in the game can carry out wars of aggression or support terrible policy. You mentioned um, a few movements as well, like, you know, Black Lives Matter. And um, I don't know if you mentioned Occupy Wall Street, but there are yep. a bunch of those kind of left counterculture movements. Um, I'd say that um, they, whilst they show an incredibly clear um, desire for an alternative. They're also under-institutionalized for a number of re re uh, reasons. Um, mm -hmm. Like you can obviously see the difference between an amorphous movement like Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter and an institutionalized movement 
um, like the Democratic Party or like mm-hmm. um, on the right, like the Tea Party within the Re- Republican Party. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but that's one of the core things that needs to change. Um, mm-hmm. There are lots of kind of systems underpinning the non accountableness of the political system and its non-representativeness there are things like the fact that um electoral districts are gerrymandered um in order Mm -hmm. to keep votes a certain way the fact that um the political system encourages coalescence into two parties we like this has also become really clear in the uk because we have conservatives and labor and then a bunch of smaller parties which are um kept out by the fact that it's a first past the post system um, mm-hmm. But even when you look within the Conservatives and within Labour, which for the last five plus years have basically both been in a state of perpetual chaos, part of the reason for that is neither of them is actually a single party. They're both um, multiple parties awkwardly coexisting under a single umbrella. So within Labour, you have like a centrist movement um, from like the legacy of Tony Blair, mm-hmm. and you have a much more hard right movement, um, which is what brought Corbyn to power within the party a few years ago. And they don't really work within the same party. They don't actually agree on very much. And again, with the conservatives, you have the same thing. You have centrist David Cameron-esque conservatives. You have um, a much further right Boris Johnson type um, movement who don't agree on very much. Brexit exposed many of the fault lines between them. Mm -hmm. But the only reason they're in this awkward marriage together is because the political system um, is set up in such a way that it only really works if you're a member of the two main parties. Um, And that's the thing that I think um, anyone who wants, I I wouldn't even just say progressive movements, anyone who wants politics to work better and to be less tribal needs to be working on ways to fix that over the next decade. Hi, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitbox. Now, Bitbox is a hardware wallet that's open source, incredibly secure and easy to use. And it's what I'm using to safely secure my Bitcoin in cold storage. Now, I know self-custodying Bitcoin can really be intimidating, but Bitbox is designed for ease of use without compromising on security. It's USB-C compatible and allows you to easily back up and restore your private keys with a micro SD card, which is really cool. Now, you can purchase the Bitbox using the promo code TPB at the link found in the show notes for 5% off your purchase. And I really want to thank Bitbox for their support of the podcast. And I'm really excited about this new partnership. All right, I'll let you get back to the episode now. Yeah, and I think um, uh, the way I kind of uh, approach some of these things where uh, or look at it is it really takes that that coalition building, for lack of better terms. Like everyone plays a role, right? You have a a political insider um, who might need to propose certain legislation that gets the ball rolling. You need political outsiders to this. You need different um, ragtag movements who say, I would never touch foot inside this building or speak with those people. You need some of the people that are willing to go and speak with politicians that are also from this group. So taking all of those groups together, I, for me personally in the U S context, um, I feel like that's one of the only ways to, but you're right. I think, talking about Occupy and Black Lives Matter, there there was not enough of a, and I felt this about climate movements, especially, because I've gotten to the point uh, more and more frustrated with with these movements, but also more so just folks wanting to educate themselves. Like, are we after solutions and actually to make this change? Are we after you excited that you're a part of a movement and 
that's what you're doing, <laughs> right? I, I think I'm more on the solution side, which led me to Bitcoin in the first place um, from a human rights angle, mm. from a, a view of the system. I'm like, I don't see long term how this system can be better for property rights for individual, for human rights and for wealth inequality on a long enough time horizon without a new system that that led me to Bitcoin in the first place. If I didn't connect that, I probably wouldn't be here. I'd be like, it's I'm not into finance. I'm not into money. What is, what is this about? Like, I'm this yeah. like liberal nonprofit guy. Like, so for me, it's like coalition building and and trying to get people all on the same page with that. Um, I, I don't and know. again, <laughs> if you um, if you take it from first principles and you want to be more radical about um, the way the paradigm currently works, um, representative democracy in its you know in its essence um, came from logistical needs because. Mm -hmm you can't possibly be expected to have your say on everything that concerns you. And therefore you elect a single person who um, goes to, you know, the, the, the place politics is done and represents you on a whole host of issues. But um, that kind of inherently brings with it some tribalism, because if you're voting this way on a certain issue, the idea is that you're voting that way on every single issue. And therefore you elect a guy who is like firmly in that camp and only votes in that direction. Yeah. In the modern world, you know, issues are a lot more mixed. People have far more diverse and quirky perspectives, but also we're able to have the infrastructure to cater for that. Um, there's an interesting experiment in Taiwan where they have a digital platform, um, which allows them to have, I think, non-binding referenda of the population on a whole host of different topics and have mm -hmm. um, a political system which takes into account people's views um, you know, a lot more um, consistently and constantly. Audrey Tang's work is, is uh, something really interesting to check out if you're interested in that. Okay. Um, yeah. Send me send me that after. I'll, I might throw them, make sure that's in the show notes. Absolutely. There's there's concepts like liquid democracy, which take that even further and mm. play with the idea of like, what if you could um, have a say on every issue individually. And on issues which you're not an expert, you can delegate your vote to a specific person to make that decision on your behalf. And if you mm. don't like what they're doing, you can then withdraw it. Because again, electoral cycles and having one election every four years is partially logistical. How in the 18th century were you meant to um, get the opinion of the entire population um, across you know, a huge country any more frequently than that without it being like your full-time thing. Whereas now in the era of um, digital communications, you could do that. And well, if you paid enough care to make it secure from foreign interference, which is uh, a whole different kettle mm -hmm. of fish. Um, so again, we're looking at a system which was built with certain assumptions in mind, and a lot of those assumptions are no longer relevant. And we don't really take the time to step back and think, hang on, is this really the best way we can achieve first of all what are the goals we are trying to achieve and secondly is this the best way that we can achieve them or can we do something more efficient yeah completely and from kind of a bitcoin community if you will um focus i kind of heard three camps one of the main ones is like a, a badge of honor like i don't vote i've never voted so that's like a badge of honor i've always thought that was very it, everyone you know you're entitled to, to do that i don't think people should be required to vote um but that's kind of a weird flex in, in my opinion yeah who was it that said you may not take an interest in politics but politics will certainly take an interest in you yes 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 i forgot who said that but i've heard that quote many many times um absolutely 
So there's that. Uh, there's more of a, um, I mean, there's so many different people proposing whether it's uh, city states are going beyond that into democracy doesn't work. <laughs> so, there, so, so there's that camp as well. Um, kind of an anarcho-capitalist camp. I mean, there's many different factions that have said similar things and viewed that differently, but uh, whether it's um, just saying democracy doesn't work or we need kind of a benevolent king or dictatorship, um, these type of things. I'm definitely not in that camp. And I think most people listening to this are not in that camp. And then there's kind of closer to what you're saying, which is a more quote unquote, some of the, the way the US I think thinks about it or talks about it in our history classes and things like this is like a direct democracy approach, like making that as, as direct and streamlined as possible. So the things that you're talking about, some of the things you've said already, I'm like, yeah, we should just try that. But the amount of people uh, within the system that would make sure that everything you're saying right now does not see the light of day is, is pretty, um, is pretty overwhelming. But again, throughout history, you could say that in any single movement, oh, this would never happen. And the only way is to, to go I also don't want to be happen. idealistic. Like none of these things is yeah. a silver bullet. A lot of these um, radical ideas that I've mentioned are, you know, have, have massive drawbacks in themselves. And yeah. um, everything comes with those drawbacks. And it's a matter of balancing and figuring out which ones you're happy with and which ones you're not. Um, if you're someone who wants to work within the system, um, like I'd agree with people who say like voting is is not do is doesn't do much in this day and age because you have parties which are remarkably aligned on a lot of especially the way the system works mm -hmm. um so where your vote would actually have impact is at a much earlier stage in the selection of the candidate rather than in in voting between the candidates in the actual election if you get involved yeah. in the internal machinery of, of a political party that's probably where you can make a lot more impact yeah and one of one of the things that kind of pulls on the thread of what you were mentioning that I, I personally am very intrigued in is when there's any sort of um, in, in the, the local states that are considered like ballot questions. Um, and, and that feels like a very direct, direct democracy movement that also, you know, cause on the flip side, in the age of um, social, social media kind of technology, you know, this isn't going to be a conversation about like misinformation and how do we control that or not. But in, in the age of that, like if you see like everyone votes on everything with the click of a button, right? I can see how that might not end up the greatest. Um, for, for me, that was kind of the the humor of a Trump presidency. People are like, oh, this would be crazy. This would be nuts. Let's do it. Um, and that's what happened. Now take that onto every single issue. Yeah. Um, but like state ballot questions, for instance, like there could be like a, a, a different state initiative, whether it's a, a, lot, a lot of the ballot questions that came out were on like marijuana and access to recreational marijuana and decriminalizing marijuana. That was a ballot question where it was a direct democracy, majority wins, vote of you had to circle the button, yes or no, um, yay or nay on, on the sheet. And, and again, of things are what, the, what the existing system gave was a system in which um, people are being locked up for nonviolent offenses and mass yeah. um, in a very racialized way. Yeah. Um, and when this was actually put to the population, it turns out they didn't agree with the political orthodoxy of the way things had to be and always have been. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and, and take that on an even local level. So states are already, depending on which state you're in, massive economies like California is like the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world just by itself. So that's a, that's a massive institution already. Um, but localize that even more into your city, right? And I think people, there are a lot of people that think that progressive or left means you're for the largest possible government solution, period. And I keep reiterating Perhaps, maybe, that could be one person's view. 
But in general, no. What I see from your average everyday left and progressive folks are movements or different value sets that are screaming at the institutions, especially the warmongering institutions, the sexist and racist institutions, these things and saying, we want things to be different. You know, I don't have progressive friends that they're talking about, okay, yes, the government needs to be this massive singular, no, that's not, that's not the type of progressive and left movement. So when people think of that, I'm like, I think you're, I think you're mistaken here. Some people might be into those different um, things. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's become this stereotype um, yeah. about the left. And in many cases, I think um, the, the values which the left stand for would actually be very effectively promoted by a simple change in a single law, which protects um, a certain um, center of unaccountable power. Yeah. rather than having to build a huge government apparatus to to do something. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, taking that direct democracy approach and then uh, doing state level, localizing it through communities, that, that would be something that's very, very interesting, but that we're a bit um, opposed to in the United States in many ways. Do you know of, you mentioned Taiwan, do you know of any, um, any other systems or, or nations Possibly even in the West or at local levels. I'm not sure what this looks like in the UK as well. Is there is there any sort of ballot questions like that in the UK in terms of voting? I'm actually curious on that. I don't I don't think I'm well. Aware our, of our recent our recent record on that hasn't been great, considering well, the last right, referendum right. was on Brexit. Yeah, besides that, yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard good things about but the on Estonian like issues, system, like a, a, the Estonian system. Yeah, um, the, which is very heavily digitized um, and mm. meant to be very easy, but I couldn't tell you many details on that. Um, I've heard the UAE is attempting to, uh, you know, as, as much criticism as I have for the political system in the UAE, attempting to make government services digitally accessible to everyone, um, mm-hmm. which is obviously something huge um, in, in countries where accessibility is a chronic problem, which I think is every country. Yeah. Um, but generally, I think there's been a remarkable lack of, you know, clear thinking about the issue and a lack of will to do things differently. Politicians have been, for the most part, very timid over the last few decades, content with keeping the system chugging along as it already has been in a very technocratic way, rather than um, really experimenting with new ways of doing things, which is, mm-hmm. um, that's, I guess, my core critique of the left is that so much of it has become about slogans rather than actually trying new things and building new systems, which is what we're so desperately in need of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to go back to to one of your points that you made about our representative democracy, like a couple of hundred years ago. Um, one of the things that also was different is we didn't have lifetime politicians at the time. I mean, our, our George Washington, our first president, um, was a very uh, rich aristocrat in one sense of the word, but also was very opposed to did not want to be king, did not want to be. So we had a lot of people that were in political office that typically didn't want to pursue that in the first place. There was this, it, it's it's this weird place of there were very duty-driven people, but they also had slaves. <laughs> it was this very, um, there, there, there were many different things going on in terms of morals, right? It's not as, as black and white um, as we pretend that it is in some of these cases. So, for uh, different leaders, like they would go into Congress for two years and they come, come back home and work on their farm. They, you know, it was not this, this is my lifetime appointment. This is my job. Um, if anything, it was like, I'm away from home for six months at a time because they had to take horse and buggy and go to DC and, and represent, right? Do those things. So our system is so completely different 
than that in so many different ways. Not only do we have the option to, to hear directly from constituents in you know uh, light speed, but also people are seeking lifetime appointments. There's money in politics. There's power grabs, all of this. And sure, that that has always happened to some degree, but not to this level. So it's almost like we have the our system is set up in the worst possible way today. So we need to make adjustments, at least in one area, like removing money and uh, term limits, I think are great practical solutions, but also adding more democracy to, to our system. One of those things at least needs to start to happen. Yeah, there was a push a few years ago in the UK for um, the concept of recall petitions and the ability mm. of um, constituents to be able to recall a politician. Um, in practice, I think the threshold for that is so high that um, it's pretty unfeasible, uh, sure. except in the case of, you know, massive malfeasance. Um, there have been cases of um, members of parliament here who basically don't show up to parliament for months and months at a time and nothing can be done about it. Um, mm -hmm. There are members of the House of Lords, uh, which is the, the upper chamber of our, our political system, who actually don't show up for years at a time. Um, wow. Yeah. And it's the second largest um, legislative chamber in the world, I think, after the the Chinese one. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, that's insane. I think um, we would probably see that here in the States more if people weren't so worried about their careers, <laughs> because mm. it's, it's kind of political suicide. It's not about, sure, yes, at some early point, they could say it's about the constituents, you know, doing it, but there's, I my personal view is that there are a small minority of politicians at the real end of the day that is their daily driving motivation. They might think that's theoretically, but then a lot of them you see slowly, they're like, okay, they're vying for power within their party. They're vying for a, a future position. They're vying for a future, okay, you need to appease to the Speaker of the House because I want to be Speaker of the House or I want to be in a certain committee and I need to be in this person's good favor to be a part of that committee and this and that. And sure, they might say the end justifies the means, but that's where we get caught up in the US at least, and I'm sure in other many other places. So the thought of people doing that in the US, it's not because they're like, oh, you know, we're not being fair to our constituents. The thought is that's political suicide and this is my this is my life. <laughs> I need to, yeah. you know, appeal to these people. I think one of the ideas that has been lost by the wayside, like the right retains this um really strong emphasis on checks on the power of government. Um, mm. But I think one of the ideas that was lost was there was this focus on government because government was the predominant power once upon a time. And now society contains many different powers. And with right. this obsession of checking the power of government, we've forgotten to check the power of you know corporations who are arguably more powerful today than the government yeah. or check the power of um, the mainstream media. Um, and again, these these are ideas that need systematizing more. Um, there's a lot of people who've theorized about them, but um, I'm not seeing the proposals for new ways of doing them um, mm -hmm. in the modern day. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if you've you've thought much on this. I know we're we're kind of nerding out a bit politically on political theory, but the thing that for, for me that Donald Trump really cracked in a lot of ways was any, any sort of right left like to suggest that um for me a lot his rhetoric is all loose cannon first of all but his actual policies are, are very complicated to see where where his head's at it's not a typical republican democrat yeah approach. it's the fracturing like, of that right left dichotomy sure because a lot of his policies it, were actually quite protectionist 
For sure, for sure. And very, very far left isolationists in that in that regard are kind of historically what that what that might look like. Um, but for uh, yeah, with with Trump, a lot of it kind of broke down with it. you mentioned checks on government. That's hysterical to me because with with the Trump presidency, um, Trump being the, the head of the government in a lot of ways, yes, we have our different branches of government and checks on power in that way, or else he probably would have done even more. Um, and again, for people that might be listening to this so far and they're like, well, the left does this too. Yeah, I understand completely. <laughs> there are so many power abuses from the left um, that I will criticize all day and, and have. But with with Trump, the checks on power, like he wanted to just arrest and round up journalists. Like he, he wanted to destroy his personal en enemies using the power of the government. So the fact that the right can ever say at any point post-Trump because they've decided Trump is their person since he's been in and out of office. Trump has been the head of uh, the Re <clears throat> Republican Party in the United States. There is no check on government power. Like Trump wants full power. So anyone talking about power and freedom and suggesting that Trump can help usher that in, that that's laughable to me. Um, that There is no uh, more check on, on government power from Republicans. I mean, Republicans used to be the party that Growing up again, we saw I for me as a kid, it was the Bush presidency. So the power was in military might. That was the um in international affairs. That was the Republican Party for a very long time, since probably Bush Sr. and even before that. And obviously Clinton kept that going. Um, but now it, it's really hard to figure out what that is. But there's there's abuses of power in, in both parties. There is no more check on government power. I think both are both parties in different ways, and you can assess which one is better or worse. We're trying to pursue government power in a more totalitarian bent um regardless of a political party but trump is absolutely a part of that <laughs> and helped usher yeah, that and, in in so many ways and and just to underline um like what you're basically saying is the old system isn't working the the functions these parties used to do in terms of checking each other and holding on to like certain values each it, that that's no longer being done um and that just emphasizes the need for new institutions which organize people around you know the sets of values that they want to see embodied in their system um yeah. and organizing them so that their voice can be heard and make an, an impact on the system <clears throat> yeah absolutely and I, I think um one other topic that i wanted to get in with you that you you had mentioned as well before um before coming on and sent over in notes is you know a lot of times in the in the world of bitcoin one thing that we focus on and see is i mean even outside of bitcoin is you know, there's the American empire, there's the British empire, there's these things that have been reigning for so long. And we're seeing the breakdown of that, the breakdown of trust in these institutions, the breakdown in trust of the US dollar and global debt. And, you know, some people will say, okay, this is going to collapse tomorrow, Bitcoin standard. I'm, I'm not one of those people. I think it will take much longer. These folks are very, very good at kicking the can down the road, right? But the, the world order has been fracturing for, for quite some time. And it, it continues to. We're seeing different factions. We're seeing Chinese-led factions. We're seeing different um, nation states trying to to assemble and combat the the power and dominance of the U.S. Um, or the World Bank or all of these other things that um, you probably focus on a lot. I know Alex Gladstein focuses on a lot. But one other interesting case is you know what you you sent over about South Africa um, and, and their court and the approach that they've taken towards. Palestine uh, towards Gaza and, um, you know, the human rights abuses and, and what they're suggesting are violations of different war treaties and, and freedom accords and things like that, that Israel has been doing. And yes, we can say that's about a specific instance, but um, 
I'm curious. I know South Africa stands in Nelson Mandela for quite some time with Palestine and Gaza and I've uh, studied abroad in South Africa as well. It's one of my favorite places on earth. Um, and the people there are amazing for you. I think with this situation, does this strike you as, Oh, wow, this is very interesting and surprising that they've taken this stance that, that they've gone to such lengths to criticize Israel and want to bring about this case against Israel for war crimes. Or do you think this seems par for the course of what, um, they've done in the past or what nation states might start to do more in the future. Cause I think this is, I agree with you. I think it's very, very interesting um, for them to do this. I don't think that their criticism of Israel is surprising per se. What I do think is, is pleasantly surprising is their use of the apparatus of or the attempt to use the apparatus of international law. What we're mm -hmm. going to see now is um, the definitive word on whether um international law is actually worth the paper it's written on or it's not depending on what happens at the court um but i think what we're basically seeing is um the slow shift from a multipolar uh, from a unipolar world to a multipolar one um a stat that illustrates um the way the world has radically changed is that um in the 1600s before the beginning of british colonialism in india um, India accounted for an estimated 27% of global GDP. Um, mm. At the end of the British Empire, in the middle of the 20th century, it had become 2%. Mm. So the West was, you know, there's this idea that um, the West emerged out of this um, chain of Enlightenment thought beginning in ancient Greece and, you know, going through the Renaissance, etc., to um, the Industrial Revolution through to modernity um which i think is a little bit oblivious to the fact that actually the west was built on looted with, with looted funds mm -hmm. and the way the world is today with the inequalities that it contains is not because the world is inherently this way it's because it was made to be this way and yeah. we're basically seeing a slow correction um and the drifting of countries back towards a more neutral baseline of what they originally were. Um, part of that system, which is ending, is the fact that certain countries were basically above the law, um, you know, especially the US, um, which mm. doesn't consider itself party to um, a lot of these conventions on international law, doesn't, mm. you know, doesn't consider itself um, um, to be part of the, it's not a signatory of the Rome Statute. Um, and Israel as its client state is, is basically protected under that umbrella, um, completely shielded from accountability, prosecution for crimes committed. And now that the U S is no longer, um, or I wouldn't say no longer, that's an exaggeration. It's less of a hegemonic power with every year, uh, because of this, um, shifting of the world order. I think we're going to see, um, attempts to bring more accountability. And I wouldn't, by default, um, put my trust in them internally because there are also attempts to, you know, jockey politically. Like people like mm -hmm. Putin and Xi Jinping are attempting to use this as an opportunity to have their own moment of ascendance and impose right. themselves. Um, so there are, you know, multiple things happening at the same time. But I think um, people who believe in human rights and believe in these ideals of, you know, human dignity and equality and accountable government can be using this as an opportunity to build a more equal world.
mm-hmm. and I hope that's what's happening is is basically part of a shift in that direction. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you, what you said that um, basically a lot of nations and and the U.S. and other Western states are starting to get used to um, states expressing their their views <laughs> or, or, or or kind of asserting their their independence. And this is a, a shift from the norm in a lot of ways. So it's very interesting. Uh, you know, like some of these, you know, they're not all all equal, but some might just be a state expressing their independence and doing as they wish. And then some folks are up in arms about this, uh, which I think is very, very interesting. And it's like, no, it's a, a, a return to that pre-whatever era uh, of states um, feeling more ability to do this. Um, I mean, folks can say that El Salvador has been doing that financially, um, globally, yeah. with with the way they've critiqued um, the IMF, the World Bank, and how they want to you know, assert their independence in some ways. I know in other ways, there's been different affiliations. They're kind of tying out, receiving aid from China, other other different things, right? And um, you know, again, I'm not going to get into an analysis of, of thing. it's not this this black and white, good or bad, or or, or, or whatever. Um, but that state um, kind of instituting their independence and trying to make decisions for itself, regardless of what the U.S.'s views are on that has been very interesting. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see for better or for worse, what, what course a place like Argentina takes as well. I think, um, the, the new president there, Javier Malay, uh, he it, in some ways spoke of a big game on this, but in other ways, you see a lot of handshakes with the world bank. You see a lot of other things that we'll see. Um, I think kind of similar to Trump folks say a lot. We'll see what, what is done at the end of the day. But I, de- I think it's definitely an interesting point in history. And I, I don't know if we'll be able to put our finger on, okay, this point is what started this. Um, but I think it'll be a few decades of interesting course of action um, in what I view as kind of the, the end of an empire and transition yeah. to a, a new world. And you can see the way that many international institutions are set up is also with the assumption that the world is with a certain configuration of power. An example is the the idea of the UN Security Council mm. and um, the, that assumption that this handful of countries are the only countries whose opinion actually matters on global affairs. They are the ones who have a veto. And yeah. um, if they decide something, no one else can say otherwise. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. You, you, uh, one of the things you said early on in this conversation was if people can step outside of their assumptions and just try to think for themselves on an issue, like you just saying that, on on it on at face value that's kind of wild to think about like that's that's the way the world has been structured for quite some time uh yeah <laughs> it yeah, is it's it crazy quite but we're just so used to years. seeing it right right exactly um <laughs> yeah there, there's so many different things you know i love picking your brain on all of this uh, is there obviously you've had a focus on um the middle east and north africa is there a particular place um i mean you've mentioned a couple in terms of democracy efforts but in terms of your optimism or hope on the way the world is transitioning and where is there a particular place or set of set of ideas um or certain movements uh that you've seen that have been deeply inspirational to you or possibly the work that your nonprofit is working on um have there been things that you're really excited about seeing um and supporting um well, for the from the bigger picture, I'd say I'm I'm really excited to see the emergence of Africa. Um, you know, the continent has mm. faced so much injustice, so much violence and oppression over the last few centuries, and it may be that this is the century in which Africa truly becomes independent. And I don't mean that in the the, the nominal sense, because 
a lot of places which gained their independence from open colonialism a few decades ago still suffer under um like monetary colonialism today yeah um but um i think south africa is part of this movement towards african nations having um more assertiveness and a greater say over over their own destiny and i'm i'm really excited to to watch that play out um i also think the um the middle east has returned to this um deceptive stasis um which is what we had pre-2011 where outsiders assume that um the situation is stable because not much is happening um in many countries which are you know governed by autocracies and what's happening in fact is actually deeply unsustainable but um the uh, the 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 coming breakage won't be visible until it actually happens which is what mm. happened in 2011 you know if you'd pulled people at the end of 2010 they would have said yeah egypt is egypt hasni mubarak has a firm grip on the situation um when he eventually dies his son's going to inherit and it'll continue as it was before um little did they know that within mere weeks um the entire country would be turned upside down and i think that's yeah. that's basically where we are again um and when that happens um there could be some um great opportunities for civil society movements to take a more active role mm. if they're ready and that's basically what my organization works on yeah is there you you mentioned financial freedom because i i think um you know different terms of whether it's uh slavery or imperial control like some things for for folks studying history are are a bit more visible on the surface right but i think the era we've entered into since you know the 50s even before that with especially with the continent of africa and the end of imperialism in one form transition to this monetary imperialism which we've had farida on the show to talk about we've had alex on the show to talk about um some of the best i think conversations and things to think about the ways um nations are still really having a tough time uh lifting themselves up and getting moving forward with the will of the people and all of these things um, in terms of um, Bitcoin and thinking about Bitcoin and something that's separate and not controllable by those interests, um, I, I'd be really interested to hear your perspective on what do you think Bitcoin fixes and what does Bitcoin not fix? And I, I guess what's easier is what are the things that Bitcoin can fix and you know whatever else is things that, okay, that, that's not really how that would work in your mind. Because some people would like to say Bitcoin fixes everything, right? And I think some people get very protective of Bitcoin as this new monetary technology, feel the need to protect it and protect the narrative around it. Um, But I'm much more interested in seeing what at the end of the day can actually help people, especially these these types of conversations. Yeah, I think um, humans can fix almost everything. And Bitcoin is a very Mm -hmm. powerful tool towards that. But I don't think by default it's going to fix much, Um, especially if it continues the path we're going right now in which... um, I feel like um, people's focus has turned entirely towards its adoption by um, large financial institutions mm-hmm. um, rather than the fundamental promise that it offers. Um, so so by default, I don't think it's necessarily going to fix anything, um, but it's going to take a lot of human ingenuity in, in terms of um, the application of it to specific problems. Yeah, and, and for you, because I'll be honest, I think a lot of it is still quite quite theoretical. Um, there have been specific use cases and specific instances for human rights activists, for 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 different folks, um, whether being paid in Bitcoin and able to actually secure this, for certain folks fleeing Ukraine were able to do this, but this wasn't at a at a massive large scale. 
um, and, and and still isn't. Um, I think I think globally it has at a pretty good scale, uh, depending on which nation state you're in. But being realistic about this technology is 15 years old. Um, th this isn't a globally adopted system yet. Even in El Salvador, it's not. Um, it, it's nationally adopted from a state perspective, but the amount of folks using it day to day is still fairly low. Um, it's still impressive. It's very impressive for 15, 15 years. I want to be clear about that and I could not be more supportive. It's one of the, one of the few things I have hope for in terms of a tool that humans can use to fight oppressive systems. It's one of the tools that I believe in more than anything or else I, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, but for you, are there kind of specific theoretical use cases well, or maybe practical that, that you've seen or theoretical use cases that you'd be excited to see um, Bitcoin as a tool for? So in terms of the practical, we're, we're very focused on um, using it to enable people who live in either states with failed economic systems like Lebanon and Libya, where you, you struggle to do um, international transactions or even mm -hmm. domestic ones in the case of Libya, um, or to enable um, people fleeing conflict as in Sudan. Um, to be able to do so more safely with their assets. Um, in terms of theoretically, I do think actually that um, the level of adoption um, by these use cases does actually pose a challenge to Bitcoiners. Um, we have to think hard about why it is that we haven't seen it catch on more in, in the places where we expected it to be a slam dunk and really consider some of the issues that raises, um, whether that's about um, fees and, and chain congestion on, on you know, mm -hmm. on Bitcoin itself, or whether that's about the readiness of uh, layer two technology like Lightning. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there are some questions that we need to ask. I'm not a fan of um, setting up sacred cows, as you can tell, um, mm -hmm. and 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 we need to be self-critical if we're to actually get anywhere. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge first step that we're still very, very early on um, with is that ability to be self-critical. And and for me, uh, a lot of it, whether we're talking about human rights, whether we're talking about environmental impact and a lot of the resistance from from the left, for instance, around Bitcoin, crypto in general, that kind of stuff is, you know, setting the facts straight first. And then we can go on to phase two, which is, OK, criticizing or kind of having open discussion about what does and doesn't address? What are some of the problems we still need to think uh, within within Bitcoin itself, whether philosophically or the technology itself, or scaling and doing di different technologies? And the the money and support just has not been there in some of the other mm -hmm. ways. Like imagine the amount of money that's being poured into um, climate research, climate action, and still the fact that we're falling short on that. Right now, imagine Bitcoin, this new monetary technology facing huge resistance from every powers that be, whether it's on the surface or whether behind the scenes, um, they kind of see what's going on and are resistant to it. Now, imagine that level of resistance and the fact that VCs um, funding, government funding, all of this stuff is not necessarily pouring into like Bitcoin only stuff. Um, I think it's doing remarkably well given all of that. But you're right. I think I do worry about to really level up and go to the places where I, I would love to see it go and really love to see it flourish, which for me, the US and a lot of in a lot of contexts, the West does not need Bitcoin in terms of people are using Venmo, they're using Cash App, they're using these things to transact. They have fairly stable currencies uh, for the time being, all of this. Um, and a lot of people agree with that. Some people that's not the most popular opinion. But for me, I'm more interested in seeing those use cases that you described. 
for the folks that really need it, having access to use it, understand it, and it making sense to them and having technology that, that works for them. Um, have you, do you think at all about the use of stable coins and things like that? I know that's something that uh, Alex Gladstein and others have, have talked about the reality of, like some Bitcoiners won't, won't touch that, but other folks who are seeing it actually in action saying, okay, we've seen this as a use case. We're not saying, you know, we're advocating for this or that, you know, this is any similarities to, to Bitcoin, but we're just seeing that people are, are using it. Um, is that something that you've thought about at all? Not in extreme depth, but I do. Um, yeah, I have found it useful myself. I've experimented mm. with a lot of technologies um, in the crypto space just to, in order to understand them and what they enable. And I, I think stable coins are probably the, the killer app there. Mm. Um, and I've heard of you know many experiments on bringing stable coins to the Bitcoin network. I haven't seen them play out yet. I'm very curious. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't but think yeah, I'd, I'd also endorse what you said um, in terms of um, the real use cases being outside of the West. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very. I think it'll be a very interesting decade for that, and I too am very concerned with. I mean, we've we've talked about the ETFs a little bit um, in the U.S. context because, fortunately, unfortunately, the way of the U.S. at the moment, especially the global financial system, is a lot of times the way of the world. Um, so a lot of people were really anticipating and excited about the, the spot Bitcoin ETFs because they knew that this could increase the, obviously a number go up in terms of, of Bitcoin, but again, the way of the world, maybe this gives other nations permission to look into it themselves. You know, Hong Kong is trying to, it seems like possibly pursuing a race to do their own spot, B, um, ETFs in, in Hong Kong. So Unleashing capital. Some people on a positive note have mentioned, oh, this is good. This is more mainstream adoption, lets people understand it. But again, obviously the humor in this is, you know, the whole point of, of Bitcoin was adopted shortly after, uh, you know, the global recession and great financial crisis of 2008, um, not needing Wall Street, not needing any intermediary, separate from banks, separate from governments. And then you see a lot of folks getting very excited now that Wall Street is here. Obviously, I see the the humor there, and I um, I have many different conflicting views on it. But um, you mentioned uh, kind of early on. I don't know if there's kind of fear from your end or thinking about that. But do you um, how do you how do you weigh that in in this ecosystem? Or you, you, some people have a fear that it's almost co opting Bitcoin, and we'll kind of see the end of what Bitcoin could be due to this. Others yeah, are like, worry about this that. is good. They can't stop it. I definitely worry about that. I, I think about um, the potential for attempts to fully regulate Bitcoin and de-anonymize it um, wholesale. Mm. Um, I do get the argument of um, adoption and that nation-state adoption is, you know, ultimately pushing sound money um, and making the marginalizing debasement. But personally, my concern is for the little guy, not really um, nation-states. So yeah. that's that's where my focus is. Yeah. Well, getting uh getting back to the the little guy, kind of one one final thing I'll ask is, you know, from your from your nonprofit, your work, you had mentioned possibly some training institutes coming up, some different things that you're working on. But for for you and your organization, the the year ahead, what are some things that you're you're looking towards in terms of your your work and things you are you're focused on, um, so that I can refer people as well to to look into and dig more and, and support you. So we're working on a MENA training hub. 
um, to onboard um, human rights organizations, um, independent media outlets and activists, um, and to help them do um, transactions, uh, receive money internationally, get grants, um, get contracts and, and pay their people outside of the um, the government system so that they can't be surveilled, especially in repressive countries. Um, that's um, been supported by a grant from HRF um, and we're probably mm-hmm. going to uh, launch fully in the next couple of months. Um, aside from that, we're working on um, um, a lot of uh, disinformation related stuff, um, tracking what's happening uh, in the Middle East, especially, but also in terms of trying to manipulate um, external information sources to feed you know, Western audiences with a distorted picture of reality in order to achieve political objectives. Mm. Um, that's our um, Jamal Khashoggi disinformation monitor program. Um, and we're also planning to scale up on our media production over the coming months because uh, there's kind of uh, a shortage of um, sources on the Middle East which actually have skin in the game as opposed to just being pontificating from an ivory tower. Yeah. What What is, um, besides purchasing the book, which I highly recommend because I think that's the epitome of what you're touching on, it's being able to speak to a Western audience but having skin in the game where there's personal ties, family ties, things like that. Um, for our audience, so our audience, um, I, I've been a bit surprised by this. We are we are roughly like sixty percent U.S. based and forty percent international in terms of audience and, and listeners. Um, the word progressive is a very U.S. specific word. Um, I'm based in Massachusetts in the in the U.S., um, but a lot of our audience is is Western still, but kind of scattered throughout the globe. For our audience, as they think about, you know, we, we lightly touched on some of these things like Palestine, Israel, um, different forms of, of democracy and organization and governments and movements. There's so many different things we could have pulled an entire episode on. For, for you, what, what is uh, some really important lessons or things for people to think about when they're looking at conflicts like this and they're thinking, gosh, I don't even know who to trust. I don't even know what to think on this. I know this, this party says this, this friend says this. Um, I just don't know where to go and what resources. Um, what would you suggest to them in terms of understanding this? And if folks want to help, what, what are what are ways to do so? Well, I think at the end of the day, you got to listen to your um, conscience. If something feels wrong, it's probably wrong, even if everyone's telling you otherwise. Um, I think you've got to take in information from a wide variety of sources, especially people who have skin in the game. I keep returning to that concept because mm. people who come from the region who are materially affected by it, who have family there, um, are probably less likely to be giving you something that's totally skewed by ideology um, than mm. complete foreigners. Um, yeah, uh, there, there are so... Uh, the praising social media is not in vogue today, uh, but that what the greatest thing it gave us is the ability to be directly connected to people all over the world and that's still how i know about um what's happening in so many different places you know build a network mm-hmm. follow people um try to get um stuff direct and unfiltered rather than relying on um institutional media um and um connect that to your struggles back home i guess um understand that um authoritarianism anywhere is a threat to accountability and justice everywhere. These systems have a way of metastasizing as you guys in the U S saw, obviously with the Trump election, um, Mm -hmm. what happened was a whole bunch of global authoritarian forces, whether it be the 
the Gulf monarchies or Putin had been left to be unaccountable for so long that they started to get brave and, and spread their influence. Um, mm-hmm. And this is all part of a global struggle that we're fighting for human dignity and, and accountability. Yeah. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that, oh, there's a lot of things we didn't cover <laughs> that we that we could talk about, but is there, is there anything else that you wanted to to make sure, you know, I'd love to have this conversation again with you sometime and, and pick your brain more on things. Uh, but is there anything else that you really wanted to mention, um, you know, in terms of recent stuff to our audience, anything like that um, before we go? Well, I guess there's a genocide happening right now. So um, pick up the phone and call your representative, um, pressure them, make your voice heard. Um, seems to be the the most immediately pressing thing I can say. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and, and we'll make sure I'll follow up with you too, if there's any resources or things like that you'd like to share. Obviously your organization and work will do the book as well. Encourage folks to to get that and and read it. Um, you know, reach out to either one of us as well. Um, Ahmed, what, where's the best place for people to, to reach out to you and, and connect with you? At the moment, still Twitter until the platform collapses. Um, uh, Twitter, my, my handle is my surname. Um, you can also find at Coekabee for my organization. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for jumping on. Really, really enjoyed this this chat and all the work you do. And and please let us know how we can we can support, get the word out, um, and hopefully we'll see you at upcoming conferences and things like that. Thank you. See you around. Awesome.